Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Hello and welcome to Hysteria. I'm Erin Ryan. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco. So, Alyssa, we are about a year into the pandemic, the pandy, as the we pan- call, nobody calls it the pandy. Um, so, one thing that that a lot of people have been doing during the pandemic is opening emails by saying, "I hope this email finds you well." So, my question for you is: After things start to get back to normal, how are you going to start your emails? Erin, I don't even know. What would we do? We could be so creative when we don't have to be so incredibly sensitive. <laughs> I know. I think I'm going to write, I hope this email doesn't find you at all. I hope you are living off the grid in a beautiful cabin on a mountainside. And I hope that you have found solace and fulfillment in nature. But on the off chance you haven't, I've got a message for you. I love it. I love it. I hope to see that someday in my inbox. (laughs) <laughs> I'm, going, I'm going to just send you it like immediately. Do it. Do it. Um, wait, yesterday you said something. Wait, what was what was your glib response? I think you were like, <laughs> it was it was all caps, Alyssa. Hold on, hold on. Let's see. I was all caps. What could I have said? What? <laughs> nope. <laughs> nope. It's not that. It's not that. No, Aaron. I got nothing. You said hi, bitch. Oh, I did say hi, bitch. (laughs) Because I don't have to be nice anymore. (laughs) This week, labor reporter Kim Kelly, Riri Cheney, Allison Rosen, and Kieran Deal join us to tackle the following questions. How is Biden's COVID relief bill going to help you? What would an Amazon union mean for workers across the country? What makes Oprah such a magical interviewer? And is the royal family a silly relic, an oppressive cult, or both? All this and more right now. All right, welcome to the show. A lot of news happening. I think we should discuss some of it. Um, Once again, Alyssa, Mm. the news uh, dared occur on a Wednesday. So we're recording (laughs) this on Wednesday. This is, it's fucked. How often has this happened? It's not fair. Because It's it's also just like, the problem is, is when we record, it's not just happening. It's always going to be done as soon as we're done. Dude. Okay. So first episode, It's it's been a curse since episode one. First episode we ever recorded, Anthony Kennedy retired. Yes. And we got back together later that night. Yes, we did. We had to do an emergency extra recording session. Uh, Capital riots happened while we were interviewing Essie Cup. We got yes. out and we were like, duh, duh, duh. oh, wait, what? Zoinks, what just happened? Yeah, so we had to hold an interview for a week. Um, So right now the thing that's happening is hopefully the House of Representatives is passing the version of the COVID relief bill that passed the Senate on Saturday. So we're just going to assume that that's happening and that something crazy hasn't gone down. We are going to put on our news witch hats and, uh, and talk about the bill as though it is a fait accompli. Because when has that ever backfired on us, you know? <laughs> We're um, just one Zoom call to fix it away. <laughs> that's true. That's true. That's one of the that's one of the things about doing this all remotely is like we can just 
people don't even have to put on pants and we can we can fix it. Um, okay, so first of all, you know, this bill is huge. It's $1.9 trillion and it is exactly what Joe Biden had asked for when he came into office, which is yep. a huge victory. It cannot be overstated what a huge victory for Joe Biden this is. Um, and, you know, they talked about this on Pod Save America, some of the things that are in the bill, because there are a lot of things that are in the bill. But I'd really like to drill down a little bit about things that are in the bill that directly improve the lives of women. Because, first of all, we are half the goddamn country, and we're responsible for most of the care work in this country, child care, elder care, all hospitality work, working in restaurants. So leaving women behind would have been a big fucking mistake. To borrow <laughs> words from pretty woman, big mistake. Huge. 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 So, Alyssa, what are some things in this COVID bill that people who are women or people who like women a lot should be excited about? Well, first, one thing that's worth mentioning is that there are, of course, things that were not included in the bill that people are not happy about. But um, Joe Biden's first piece of legislation was $1.9 trillion to help working families. Donald Trump's only signature piece of legislation was $1.9 trillion in tax cuts for rich people. So worth just flagging that one. Oh, wow. Exactly the same amount of I think money? it's. I think it's really, it's, I read a couple articles and it's like really close to the same. That's so petty. I it's, love it. Right? I lo- well, maybe it's probably not petty on purpose because Biden doesn't seem like a petty guy, but I love the accidental pettiness of it. That is, it's it's kind of like the world helped Biden troll Trump. Yeah. Thank you, world, I guess, for Thank for that. you. Well, one thing that in the news witchiness of it all that you and I are very excited about is that just uh, two weeks ago, we had Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro on, who was talking about some of the important components of this bill that she hoped to see. Um, the fully refundable child tax credit for 2021, increasing the amount from 2000 to 3000 per child, age 6 to 17, and 3600 for children under the age of 6. This bill will help 10 million kids living in poverty. The wow. bill, I, I mean, that's like it's fucking huge. That is so unbelievably important. I am so excited for, I'm excited for all of the families that this is going to help and all the kids that are going to be lifted out of poverty. Um, on another level, I am so excited for Representative DeLauro, who has worked her entire career. Entire life. This is like her long game moonshot, and, she, and, and it's in this bill. Like, that's so, I mean, I don't want to throw, I don't throw this word around lightly, but it's so inspiring. She just never gave up on trying to, Get this she through. never gave up. And it's so important to understand exactly what this means. The American Family Act legislation to permanently expand and improve the child tax credit was reintroduced by DeLauro and has for many, many years. This bill would make the full value of the credit available to low-income people who are currently ineligible or only receive a portion. And for the second half of this year, it would have the federal government send advanced payments of the credit to Americans in periodic installments Aaron, this is akin to a guaranteed income for families with children. That's huge. That is so like there are so many things about this country that are way behind, especially when it comes to the way that we treat uh, mothers and that we treat families in general. And to 
at least start to bring it in the direction that it needs to go um, is so huge. And uh, like it would have, if you would have told me a year ago when the pandemic was first, you know, kind of digging in and getting ready to fuck our entire lives up, if you would have told me a year ago, Aaron, in 2020, it's March 2021, Joe Biden is the president and he has passed one of the most economically progressive relief bills in American history. I would have been like, what? <laughs> and that's not even just you saying it. Bernie Sanders said it, that this is the most progressive bill that will help more families than basically anything ever. It's it's really, I'm I'm kind of not done under, like quite internalizing what it is yet because there's so much in here. Um, another thing that's in here that is huge, that'll make a huge difference to people who maybe don't have kids um, even though lifting families out of poverty helps everybody. Yeah. But here's something that will directly help people who don't have kids. Um, it would make student loan forgiveness tax-free as long as it happens before 2026. Look, it's basically serving up the ball and being like, hey, guys, take Elizabeth Warren's double dog dare and do it. Fucking do it. It's going to help. Like, forgiving student loans and making that forgiveness tax-free would help so many people, like so many people. And I'm saying that as a person who paid off their student loans. Me too. I don't want other people to have to go through the same shit that I went through. It sucked. It was an albatross around my neck financially through my 20s into my 30s. I don't think other people should have to go through that. I, I, I think the amount of interest people pay on their education is just fucking crippling and terrible. So, you know, the student loan forgiveness kind of like it tees up some kind of promising stuff just have to win the house in 2022 <laughs> and uh, get rid of the filibuster. I think we could probably get rid of the filibuster in 2022. Um, okay. It also has rental assistance, which yeah. is great for people who don't own their homes, obviously. And here's something that's buried in there. They mentioned this on Pod Save America, but I really want to emphasize this. It would 100% cover the cost of COBRA premiums yeah. for people who lost their jobs during the pandemic. Alyssa, Huge. You're, fam you're familiar with how much COBRA premiums are. Yes. They're not cheap. It is probably akin to most people's rent payment, um, if not more. Do you? I mean, we talked about money last episode. Do you mind yeah. sharing how much you pay for your health, health insurance premiums a month? Yes, uh, about $1,900. Okay. I pay $900 a month because I'm on uh, WGA's COBRA. It's yeah, that's good. So, it's so, it, but it's so expensive. Like, and, and this is huge for people. Um, I also wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the way that the stimulus bill can help women and children leave abusers. Now, this isn't something oh. that we've gotten really into. It's been an issue for a year, and we keep kind of having it teed up in the show and then running out of time to talk about it. So can you talk a little bit about what happened with domestic violence during the pandemic and how the relief bill addresses that? Well, domestic violence spiked, um, as we can imagine. And uh, there was not a lot to help women and families in the past year to deal with uh, these scenarios. And when you think about it, you go into a shelter during COVID, it's pretty fucking hard. Mm -hmm. um, this bill, however, contains $24 billion to support the childcare industry, $15 billion for childcare subsidies, and $450 million for domestic violence services. Um, 
as you know, you know, child care subsidies are especially important. The COVID-19 pandemic resulted in the closing of 4.5 million child care slots across the country, meaning that women can't leave their children to go look for work or for their job. More than 10 million women and men experienced domestic violence, and the police department's reported increases of 18% in San Antonio, 22% in Portland, uh, 10% in New York City. Um, And one of the key provisions of this stimulus bill, this relief bill, centers on the $15 billion that expands funding for states to provide child care subsidies for low-income families with children 13 or younger, um, including domestic violence survivors. This is fucking great. Yeah, it's big. And, you know, another another thing that Biden has promised to do during his uh, term is that he's promised to renew the Violence Against Women Act. Right. And it's it's cool that some of the goals of the Violence Against Women Act have been addressed within the COVID relief bill, because who knows if the Senate can get fucking anything done. Mm. I mean, is it too is it too soon for us to say now on to paid family leave? <laughs> Uh, yeah, we, we've, we've got, we've got to do that. Like, we got to do that. Come um, on. Like the audacity of us, of us expecting new parents to go back to work with like, no, what, what is the, what is the baby supposed to do? You can adjust a work schedule. You can't adjust a baby's biological needs. Fucking adjust the work schedule. Make it the law. Anyway, that's a whole, that's a whole other topic for a whole other time. Cause I can get pretty heated about it. Um, Okay, so despite all the good things in the bill, like, again, if Bernie Sanders is going on TV and tweeting about how great it is, it's probably pretty good. It's probably pretty Um, good. But there are things in there that we did not get. And one of those things was a uh, $15 minimum wage. Yeah. So over on Pod Save America this week, John Lovett noted that he didn't really care about Senator Kristen Cinema's thumbs down curtsy vote against including a minimum wage provision, which I think was big of Love It. Very big of him. Right. But guess what? I cared. I cared. I cared. Uh, yeah. I think that it's really important that there are people that can get over that sort of thing. He's a big person. I'm not one of them. No. Over here, we are petty motherfuckers. Petty as fuck. We have a whole segment devoted to it. We have a whole thing about it. We polish our grudges like precious stones. And uh, we keep them on display on top of our vanities. We all have, we're glamorous ladies with vanities and grudges like jewels on top. So, <laughs> look, Cinema isn't the only Democrat who voted to strike a provision to raise the minimum wage from Biden's COVID relief bill. Seven other Democrats did, and all of them are disappointing in their own special ways. And all of them should feel bad, but she's mm-hmm. the only one who tried to be cute while she was doing it, and then cried don't sexism. Yeah, don't be cute. It's not fucking cute. It is it's not, not fucking cute. funny. It's not cute. It's not funny. It's not cute. And your outfit is fucking ugly. Anyway, it was after so it was ugly, so that ugly. Bag. Yeah, we're petty. <laughs> we're petty. You know what? Don't start none. Won't be none. We won't talk about <laughs> your outfit if you're not trying to be cute about denying people a raise in minimum wage. So here to give cinema a piece of her mind is a special guest roaster this week. We know her. Love her. It's Riri Cheney. Riri. Hi, Riri. guys. Hello. Hi. It's so Hi. good to see you. It's such a treat. Such a treat to see you. I'm very excited to be here. 
So this is fun. Uh, just just a preamble. If anyone on Twitter saw me tweet that I wanted to do this rant uh, around Senator Cinema, please know that if I tweet before 7 a.m., I am still asleep, and uh, that's on me. Uh, but I'm going to do this really quickly. So we already, a lot of us already saw the clip. Senator Cinema from Arizona voted against the minimum wage increase. She, in, she did it in a manner that felt... Um, to quote a really uh, rational human, Tom Cruise, glib. It felt a little glib. And here's what really frustrated me about it. I watched the clip a couple of times and it wasn't just the action of using a thumbs down. That has been established. It's happened before on all gender lines. It was in part the, yes, cutesy, uh, cutesified dip that she did when it does it. Do women's bodies get police? Sure. But when it's against a, um, a matter that would benefit largely women in this country, a lot of people who really need a lot of help right now, I'm going to have a problem with it because it shows a lack of seriousness on like for your constituents and for your nation. To them, this, and also because it was in the middle, she seemed to be in the middle of a conversation and passing that she was having with the people around her. Like she walked by, like she was like heading to go get a fro. I'll be like, I'll be right back. Let me just go vote against <laughs> people who are deeply in trouble right now and really need our help. And that fucking pisses me off. Also, it really upsets me that her response to it was, one, that's a sexist attack. Yeah, a lot of things are sexist, but this isn't. In this moment right now, you cannot act like you don't know that people weaponize, especially white women weaponize, the idea that they are cute and they can make a little slide sort of body motion comment look, and it'll be looked at as something, oh, innocuous and it doesn't matter, but it really is weaponized against the people in your community. And that really is very frustrating. Also, separately, she released a statement saying that anyone who works full-time shouldn't live in poverty. Cut that shit. No one should live in poverty and I'm done with it. If you're going to be a feminist, what's feminist taking care of everyone? If you're going to be someone who, yes, politicizes your queerness, what's queer intersectionality? And don't come back out here saying that it is sexist against you when it only benefits you because I'm done point blank period and I'm out. I'm golf clapping that. That was, that was, that was great. (laughs) Riri. I got so hot. I just so I'm so frustrated with it. It's like, don't pick the sides of your politics that fit you. We know that Washington's fucked up. We know that Democrats say a lot of things and they walk them back really quickly. That's mm-hmm. just the nature of the game. But please don't come out here and like point and pick the parts of a movement that work for you while leaving the rest of the folk who really need your help in the dark. Hmm. That's a that's Ivanka style feminism. Feminism is whatever I don't like makes it. Me, yeah. I don't like it in my Nordstroms, and I don't like it on my television. <laughs> <laughs> it's so frustrating. But you know, it's like I shouldn't get that hype. But I, you know, in at the year anniversary of all of this, we got to got to keep the energy because we got. I feel like if we don't, the slide is going to be really easy and really simple. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm just not, I I refuse. I refuse and I hope everyone else keeps, stays vigilant. And that was me being as egalitarian as I could. Because I didn't say a lot of words I wrote down in my notes app. (laughs) Um, Riri, thank you so much for stopping by and sharing that. I think that you really channeled what a lot of us were thinking. And uh, we appreciate the fuck out of you. Thank you so much. Oh my God, anytime, guys. That was your friend and mine, Riri Cheney, roasting Senator Cinema from Arizona, rightfully so. 
Um, Alyssa's going to stick around. And when we come back, we have an interview with labor writer Kim Kelly. Today, we are so excited to welcome Kim Kelly to Hysteria. She is an organizer, a journalist, and current labor columnist for Teen Vogue, and she's based in Philadelphia. If you're not already following her on Twitter, you absolutely should. Her handle is Grim Kim. Kim Kelly. <laughs> That's my college radio DJ name, which is just kind of <laughs> stuck like Grim 10 Kim. years later. <laughs> oh my God, I love that. Um, how often do you get the Busy Phillips in Freaks and Geeks comparison? Because you have the same name as the character yeah, same name same tall blonde white lady with blue eyes and attitude problem it's like <laughs> people of like a specific generation it's like one out of three I actually got to interview <laughs> her a couple of years ago for Jezebel purely because I wanted to be I wanted to get her to say Kim Kelly's my friend and it worked <laughs> shout out to busy it was she seems delightful. like among the top tier of cool people in Hollywood I mean as I far as say. rich people go like <laughs> it's a low bar, but I'll give it to her. Yeah. I mean, and honestly, Freaks and Geeks, one of the low-key best single season shows of all time. Yes. I just hope so they don't good. reboot it. I don't think you can put that no. genie back in a bottle. No. No. It was perfect. It was a perfect show. Okay. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, before focusing on issues around labor, you were a metal reporter for 10 years, which is a little bit of a different beat a more rapid drum-driven beat. Um, why did you start covering labor, and is, was there a specific issue that lured you in? Yeah, I mean, at this point, it's been about 18, so I still haven't totally given it up. But, okay. um, yeah, I started writing my heavy metal when I was 15, and I was like, this is what I'm going to do forever. This is sustainable, and this is going to hold my interest for, you know, until I die. And, you know, <laughs> there I did have a – I did kind of pivot, like a lot of places in 2018 – but I went from being the heavy metal editor at Noisy, which is Vice's, I think, now former uh, music publication, to what I'm doing now. And that happened essentially because I ended up in the middle of a union drive and I got very excited about it because I'm from, and that's something I realized as I was there, you know, talking to my coworkers, it's kind of a rarity, at least in a New York City newsroom like that, to come from a union family and to come from this rural working class background. So when it was like 2015 or so, after I'd finally gotten hired full time after being a permalancer for eight months, I got pulled aside and one of my coworkers was like, yeah, we're, we're thinking about forming a union. What do you think? And I was like, you know, hell yeah. How can I get involved? And I got very involved and was at every meeting and every organizing meeting. I was standing on tables, giving speeches. I was, my, my nickname around the, un, the office was Union Mom. It just became, <laughs> it became a really consuming thing for me because I was already, you know, in, in addition to my work covering heavy metal, I was already, you know, this was 2015, 2016. So everyone kind of got a little more politicized, you know, but I was already pretty politicized. I was already involved in like anarchist organizing projects in the city. So it wasn't that big of a leap to connect like, oh, we're fighting for our rights at work. Like, here's the politics I have. Here's where I'm coming from. Of course, I want to get involved. And then at the time, I was also freelancing a lot because Vice paid me garbage. So I needed to do that anyway. And I, after I became involved with the union effort, I sort of had more of a you know, I, I think everybody has credibility to write about whatever they want, but I personally felt like I had the cred to write about labor issues. Mm -hmm. And then when they laid me off in 2019, I was like, you know what, let's just, let's just pivot. Let's just go for it. Like I'm going to be, you know, I went from being a heavy metal writer with a penchant for labor to a labor reporter who still has a bunch of satanic goat tattoos. 
(laughs) (laughs) And Kim, what makes today so wonderful having you on Hysteria to talk about labor issues is that this is in fact how you and I became friends. It's how we met. It is how we met and how we became friends because when you formed, uh, when you worked on the effort at Vice to unionize the editorial team, uh, Vice thought, what a delicious thing. We'll have Alyssa lead the management side of negotiations, this woman from the White House who got her start with Bernie Sanders. And so uh, that period of time did lead me to a life of uh, Zoloft and Xanax because I was so uh, distraught to have to be doing this. But at the same time, I got to know you so well. Lauren Euler, who was also in the negotiations as part of the leadership team with you, became the co-writer of my books. And so it's really fucked up, but also kind of awesome that this is uh, this is where we have landed. This is I, where we have landed. I got to tell you too, like we totally knew. We were like, Alyssa hates this. Like somebody said, <laughs> like someone, somebody found your Instagram. We would see you posting about wine and stuff after a long session. It was like, man, I wish you could just come drink with us. Like it sucks they're making her do this. Like we could tell it like was, she is not... Kim- She's not that one of was, <laughs> Just for the record, I know the post you're referring to because it was my 40th fucking birthday. We <laughs> negotiated like the day after or the day before my birthday and I just went and I had adopted Petey the cat and he still ate his dinner in the bathroom. I just laid out and I just drank wine on the floor with Petey and just cried because I'm like, this is so awful. I don't want to be doing this. But we did end up with, I think, uh, what was called one of the richest packages in labor negotiations. That's what, I mean, <laughs> that's what the me... lawyers said. We were just like, hell uh, yeah, I can buy groceries this week. It was, it was, a, <laughs> it was a moment. I'm glad it worked out. Um, yes. <laughs> but the most important thing now is that uh, you have been the one person I have been following religiously to keep up with what is happening with Amazon down in Alabama. So can you give us the Cliff's Notes version of what's going on with the Amazon unionization vote and the impact it would have for the future of unions in the country if they do vote to unionize? So Cliff Notes. Essentially, 5,800 workers at Amazon Facility Fulfillment Center, as they call it, very big brother, in Bessemer, Alabama, which is kind of this very impoverished exurb of Birmingham. It's like 16 miles away, but it's one of the poorest cities in the state. They have been fighting to organize a union. This this has been going on for months and months. It is a mail-in election. So instead of walking up and you know dropping the, your ballot in and having it be done, it's a longer process where the workers have to mail in their ballots. The ballots were sent out on February 8th, and they have until March 29th to get them in. And then out of that, you know, out of the workers that voted, if they vote, if the majority votes yes, then they have a union. And this is huge because people have tried to organize around Amazon before, but that's like organizing around, you know, like trying to organize New York City. Like it's just a huge sprawling behemoth of a place. But these workers who are predominantly black, predominantly led by black women specifically, like this effort, their folks are making 15 bucks an hour to just destroy their bodies, be treated like robots. They're like, you know what? We've had it. We are going to do something about this. And there's been a huge upswell of public support. A bunch of government officials and politicians have been going down there. There've been, there's been a ton of attention on the effort. And Amazon has been working overtime, ironically, to try and bust the union. 
They've been trying to mess the election. They've been doing all kinds of nefarious shit, essentially, to make sure this doesn't happen. Because they know if this happens, this is only going to be the first domino. Once this warehouse falls and sets that precedent, any warehouse in and any Amazon facility in the U.S. now knows, like, oh, they did it. We can do it. Because, like, if this group of workers who are already marginalized, already dealing with, you know, being just being crushed under the pressures of life in general, if they and they're in Alabama, which is a right to work state, which is very anti-union in a very red state, but in terms of the government, at the very least, and they're the kind of place that Jeff Bezos runs to when he thinks, okay, I can just exploit and extract every ounce of profit and capital out of this place and I'll be safe. And the workers there have shown him, like, you're not safe anywhere, little man. Like, we're going to show <laughs> you exactly what worker power looks like. So that's where we're at. And if they do vote to unionize, that is just the beginning of the process for them, right? Oh, yeah. it's This is, this is the beginning of the story. Because once you vote to unionize, if nothing goes weird with the election and Amazon doesn't pull any last minute Hail Marys, then they'll, you know, they'll have their union, but then they have to come up with their pattern of demands. They have to start putting together, you know, what they want in a contract. And then they have to sit down at the table with Amazon and bargain out that contract. And Mm -hmm. I would say as much of a pain in the ass as it was to bargain with Vice for nine months, I would say sitting down with Jeff Bezos or whatever lackey he appoints to be in charge of that is going to be a very long and painful process. But it's gonna. It's such a necessary process, and I think you know, just the, the the fact that these folks are showing, you know, we can do this, you can do this too. It's gonna have a huge impact. I just saw an article, like yesterday, saying that over a thousand Amazon workers from across the country had reached out to RWDSU, which is the union that they're trying to join, asking about organizing. So this is this is historic mm-hmm. in a bunch of in a bunch of ways. But it's just like, you know, all you need to start a, a wildfire is is a spark. Right. And these workers here are holding the match. Mm -hmm. Um, So I want to kind of zoom out a little bit. Um, Why are like labor issues, how do they overlap with women's issues and what role have women played in the history of organized labor? Right. I mean, the labor movement has been propelled forward by women since the since the jump, since the very beginning, even if they don't always get as much attention because welcome to the world. (laughs) Um, There have been so many incredibly impactful leaders, like leaders and also just rank and file workers who are just making shit happen. Whether you're talking about, you know, in New York City in 1911, the uprising of the 20,000, which was a strike led by Jewish and Italian immigrant women that were like all in their 20s. Or you talk about what's happening Amazon now, which is being led by black women to, to build a better life for themselves and their communities. I mean, every story, every story is a labor story and every labor story has that component that makes it a women's story, too. Like whether you look at even just what's happening with the economy in the wake of, you know, the panini that we're stuck in, (laughs) uh, it's probably been women who are losing their jobs. And out of that, it's probably been black and brown women losing their jobs. Like every we always get the shit end of the stick, essentially. (laughs) But even in terms of like the way unions operate, women who work at unions make more money and have more protections. It's been so impossible to get actual like gender based protections through the actual government. But in a union contract, you can do that. You can protect women and non-binary people, trans people, you can get all that stuff in your contract. It's, I'm sort of, I'm a little all over the place right now because it's such a big thing, right? But mm-hmm. even, you know, it's it's a really, it's, it's, 
it's a great time for labor, I guess. But we've we've always been here is the thing. Like mm-hmm. back from in the, the very beginning, all of my favorite women labor leaders have been radicals like the Lucy mm-hmm. Parsons, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn's, the Dorothy Bolden's and Dolores Huerta's. Right now we have women like Ai Poo and Sarah Nelson. Like there's we're we're behind everything and we're the backbone of everything. And we still get paid the least and treated the worst. And mm-hmm. that's the mission of labor is to change that. It's been a long, hard road, but I think we're going to eventually get there because we've already come so far. For people who don't know as much about the labor movement as they should, what are some things we now take for granted that organized labor is responsible for getting enacted? I mean, there are weekends, the eight-hour workday, <laughs> the end of, well, I say the end of child labor. Child labor still exists in this country, but uh, there's less of it now, which is something, you know, it's it, all of the major progressive changes that have happened over the past, you know, 100 years. It's come down to labor, whether you're looking at like FDR's New Deal policies. That was a huge labor program. When like, Even at, like what's happening with the White House now, obviously it's not enough. It's not what we need. But what is happening is going to help the workers. It's going to help people organize. When people organize, they can advocate for themselves and they are able to make changes and they're able to force people to listen. And that's, you know, that's the beauty of collective action, of collective worker power, right? Like when you're, you see, there's like the cute little, the the image of the fish, like there's a, like one big fish and and a little fish. But then if you look at like a whole bunch of fish, that big fish doesn't look so big anymore. We're always stronger together. Mm -hmm. Is organized labor a stopgap for the systemic problems in our country? For example, would the fight for unionization be so urgent if we had, uh, for example, universal health care? I mean, if anything, it would be, we'd be able to do way more if we had universal health (laughs) care. If unions didn't have to spend so much time and energy and resources fighting just to keep their members alive, imagine what we could accomplish. You know, when it comes to to bargaining a contract, one of the biggest and first things that that you have to work on is healthcare, healthcare benefits. And that takes up a lot of time because what a boss does not want to give us healthcare and healthcare benefits. So if you take that out of the equation, there's so much more time that can be spent on wages and work environment and safety and other protections, like all the other stuff that we have to sacrifice just to make sure that, so we can go to the hospital if we need to. Everything is labor. Labor is part of everything because we all work. We're all workers. We're all stuck in this capitalist system. But I think labor is the most effective lever for change because there's more of us than there are of them. Right. That's what it always comes down to. We're always going to outnumber them. And if we can work together collectively, I think we can win it. I tend to, I've given a lot of speeches at union things, so I tend to speak in slogans, but I do mean it. So, Kim, in recent years, Republican politicians have made dismantling organized labor a priority. In my home state of Wisconsin, Scott Walker did a lot to, yeah, right-to-work laws, Scott Walker-esque type uh, maneuvers to dismantle public sector unions. What are some of the other places where the attack has been egregious, and how can people fight back against that? I mean, right now what we're seeing with this horrible coordinated attack on the teachers unions is completely egregious. The Republicans are using this guise of like, oh, the economy or like the kids that we care about for some reason right now to use it as a wedge to drive the public away from any sympathy or understanding of the teachers who are just trying to keep their members alive and their students alive and their communities alive. It's truly disgusting. But I mean, 
That's what Republicans are and that's what they do. They will use any issue as a way to wedge the public away from, you know, what their their goals are. It's funny you mentioned Scott Walker. My dad's a construction worker, and I remember he went to a head. He was so annoyed he had to go to a big protest in 2011 and, like, yell about Scott Walker. Because he's, he's a union <laughs> guy, but he's like, we have, we have different views on things. But he's, he's a union guy, and there's a lot of union guys who don't like being yanked around, and the Republicans have no problem doing that because they just want to make the economy a more hospitable place for rich people, which, like, they're friends. But I mean, I would, like the teachers, the transit workers, they always get the shit end of the stick. Like grocery store workers and essential workers writ large who are just bit Republicans don't think that they're worth anything. I don't know, you know who they're paying to do their grocery shopping or who, you know. Yeah, but wasn't the clapping enough? The <laughs> clapping at 8 p.m. every night? Wasn't that enough to how I mean, do they need a union? We clapped for them. You know, you know? it's funny. My boyfriend works on a farm and the clapping really didn't come in handy when we had to pay our rent. But it was it wasn't it was a nice idea. He didn't get to see it because he was at work. But it is it's a funny thing. Like they they think we're real dumb. They think like the harder you work, the stupider you are. And that's eventually gonna destroy them, but you know, just waiting for that. <laughs> uh well Kim, I wish we could continue having this conversation, but we are out of time. Thank you so much for stopping by. We've gotta have you back to talk more when when Amazon gets that union. We would love to talk more to you about that. Um, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, personal political. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. Okay, welcome back, everybody. We've reached the part of the show where Alyssa and I are joined by two other wonderful women to discuss something pretty important. Now, Alyssa, the $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill, pretty big deal. Moderately big deal. Big enough. Right? Big enough. Big enough of a deal. The Harry and Meghan and Oprah interview, fucking huge deal. Right? This is huge, huge, huge. Huge monarchy toppling deal. Um, no, this is, I mean, it's one of those things that isn't as big of a deal to us here in the States, but it is really fun to sort of point and laugh at the, you know, decline of the monarchy because it's weird. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so we've got a great group to talk about this today. Uh, first off, she's a comedian and writer now because, to borrow a quote from her, during the pandemic, we are all writers. It's Kieran Deal. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Good to see you. Good to see you. I was just typing furiously. This is my new way. <laughs> Kieran, you, were, uh, you are from the UK. Yes, I was born are- there and I spent a good deal of pandemic there. You are of the UK. 
Yeah. Um, I am so excited to talk to you as someone who is the closest related to the royal family of any of us here. Which um, is obviously exceptionally close. To, to right, be clear. Right. To be clear. <laughs> you guys are pals. You, Kate, and Wills. You call them Wills. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> Um, I'm excited to get into this, uh, but first, introducing a special guest panelist today. She is an author and the host of the podcast, Allison Rosen is your new best friend, and she's the co-host of Childish, a podcast for parents and people who have parents. Please welcome Allison Rosen. Welcome, Allison. Hello. I'm so excited to be here, and I'm not from the UK, but I have a good friend who grew up there, and I've been texting with her about this special, and she has a totally different take on it than I do. Interesting. Did you text her, what's all this then? When you- <laughs> yeah, I, I said, have a go. Let me know what you think about it. Um, my four-year-old son is super into Peppa Pig, and the that whole pig family is British. And he said, we were playing a game the other night where we were singing like lines of songs, and he told me to have a go. So he has adopted <laughs> the British uh, uh, idioms. Um, but anyway, no, I was, I was just like, can you explain to me, uh, your feelings about the Royal family as someone who grew up there, you know, what do they mean to you? I mean, I imagine Kieran probably has a lot of thoughts on this too. (laughs) I do. Yeah. Kieran, what do you think of the Royal family? I'm curious, is your friend, what, what ethnicity is your friend? She's white. I think that makes a big difference. Yes. In terms of <laughs> in terms of where you fall on the commonwealth of of it all, you know, like the like did they come in take the jewels, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> still using them in the crown, like you know what I'm saying? I mean, the weather's bad. That's the thing. It is ugly weather in Britain, so it's like no wonder, oh, colonize, you know what I mean? <laughs> like that's that's the vibe. We all probably would have done the same thing. You know what I mean? Just pasty, pale, like rotting away. We would have been, you know, bad. Like, you know what I'm saying? It's like, there's no beach. My point is there's no beach. So it. Well, I saw Broadchurch and there is some kind of coast line situation. Oh, there's a coast. There's a coast. We just, let's not call it a beach. You see. Right. It's pretty rocky. Yeah, the water a, touches the land. The water touches the, the land in rocky formations that are also <laughs> beautiful, but still cold, you know? <laughs> so. Um, so I want to get into this Oprah, Harry, and Meghan thing because, you know, apart from, to me, as an American who has no ties to the British Isles, apart from the ancestors that came over from the 1860s because they were like, fuck that. <laughs> um, I, uh, you know, I sort of always viewed the royal family as silly to amusing. Um, When Meghan Markle joined the royal family, it sort of uncovered things that I hadn't even really thought about, about how like insidious some of the traditions of it were, uh, are, and how um, kind of set in its ways it is and how, how like truly archaic the whole thing seems. Alyssa, you and I have talked um, a little bit offline about your love of Princess Diana. And I think that you've been more of a royal watcher than I have for a longer period of time. So I would love to hear about, you know, what was your take on the interview and what was your experience watching it? Okay. So is this, this is my mea culpa part. Um, Because I have written about royals in my books. I've written articles about how much I love them. But it was for a very specific reason. It is because my Oma, when she came to America, having fled Nazis, uh, her 
the magazines, the only magazines that you were, that were German, you could get in America were all about the Royals of Europe. And so anyway, that was like our thing. Like, that's what we did. Like she would read me the magazines and we'd look at the pictures. And so when, uh, when I had the chance to go to the United Kingdom and Barack Obama knew how obsessed I was with the Royals and he, uh, he and Michelle made sure I got to meet the queen. Um, so I love the jewels, which are all, taken in bad ways, I know. Um, so let me just say that I went in. But let's just focus on the sentence, he and Michelle made sure <laughs> that I met the queen. Just like low-key throwing in this sentence, he and Michelle. I, I just, haven't met the fucking queen. I have a passport, I just Alyssa. wanted, well, let me just say, they made sure, uh, they made let's sure that I got to Barack meet her. Right no, no, I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> but they also looked at me as I approached her for my curtsy handshake and were like, girl, keep your shit together. <laughs> that was, <laughs> don't do anything. But no, I I think that, you know, all the stuff that we had been hearing for months, it's like, look, when I was going into the interview, I was like, a half a million Americans have died of COVID. We don't have a relief bill for people. I mean, I don't fucking care. Like that was kind of my, which is why we weren't really, I wasn't really planning on watching it at the beginning. So I was like, ugh, cry me a river. Right. Like if there's no wedding dress, no funny hats, no angry <laughs> no. little flower girls on a balcony. Like I was, I was in the same boat. Because, and then you're like, you're also like, how hard done by could you be? <laughs> Like, mm-hmm. I mean, come on. Like, sure. Oprah's involved now, really? Uh, but the truth is that, you know, I think, I mean, look, I'm glad for CBS they made all the money on earth doing this, but the commercials mm-hmm. every 10 minutes were fucking annoying as hell. Um, but it was basically like an hour into it when they got to the meat of the conversation. And, I mean, it was fucking terrible. It was terrible when Megan said that they, the part that got me is that, is how can you say that certain grandchildren, the three little ones uh, of Wills, get titles? What fucking explanation is there on earth for Archie not getting a title, which is not that the title is not the point. It is actually kind of the point, but it's what it conveys, which means security and all that kind of stuff. So by the time we got to that, I was uh, I was pretty mad. I thought it was pretty fucked up. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kieran, what was your experience? Did you watch the interview and what was your experience with it? There's a couple of thoughts I have here. This is, the older an institution is, the older any institution is, the more time you have to just like deeply entrench and bake in your bullshit. You just had more time to do it. Harvard's the same, you know, like, and then that's older than the federal government. But then the institution of the monarchy is so old, like, the fanciest day I spent in England, and I think this is a very telling. I, I had a dinner in the Cotswolds, very beautiful place at, at a Soho house in Cotswolds. My fa- again, my fanciest day in England during the pandemic. And I was meeting with a friend of a friend, and he said this phrase, and I think about this, and I thought about this when I watched the interview. He goes, in America, in American Los Angeles, you guys ask, um, what do you do? Uh, and he goes, and in a certain echelon of British high society, the question is, what did you do today? Because there is an inherent kind of belief that if you have to work, you're never really worthy. 
because mm-hmm. it is so indicative of class. Like, like the entrenched nature of class in Britain is not something I could highlight greatly enough. Like, not what you like, not pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Not that, but the thing of like who your dad was. Can you pay for a mortgage out of pocket? Like, um, this. That is very, very entrenched in British society, something that my family grew up with as immigrants way more than America. Like this this notion of class and where you fall, the Diana will never be, you'll never be royal. Do you know what I mean? Even if you're like, even if you're William's like wife and you're very, very wealthy, you'll never be royal. So it like in that context, it does not surprise me that Megan experienced the problems and the issues that she had, particularly concerning race. It's the like one of the oldest institutions in the world. That's my personal opinion. What I find incredible is that she said that shit out loud. Like, mm-hmm. and I think that's when I saw Oprah's face do that. Like Louis Vertel said, that guidance counselor. He was like that part guidance counselor, like part teacher, part interviewer thing that she does, where she's like, "What? <laughs> what? <laughs> like, let's get into that thing." I think she was also. You know shit went down. It it is it it was the candor of the interview that that truly did. Um, that was the revelation, not the internal workings of what's going on in that particular institution for me personally. Right. It's like you know my impression of the way that British people confront deep problems is by silently setting their teacup down and falling silent. Uh, <laughs> that's always been the, it's very similar to the Scandinavian way of solving problems, which is just not talking to the other person ever again and not explaining why. Um, I thought you were going to say Ikea. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. This is like a, it's, it's, it's avoidant and passive aggressive. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Allison, um, what was your experience watching the interview and what stuck out the most to you? So I was someone who was never very interested in the Royals and I watch other people get really caught up in it. And this is now twice that I have been not interested in Harry and Meghan. And then I find myself getting completely sucked in. And the first time was their wedding. There was so much fanfare around that, so much press. I was like, I don't, I see this happening, but I don't get it. And then I watched... And I watched her walk down the aisle and there was something about her vulnerability and her charisma. And all of a sudden I found myself like connecting to her as a person to the extent that you can from, you know, watching through a screen and someone I don't know. But still, I felt a connection. I was like, oh, I totally get it. I get why people are very into her. And then again, with this interview, I wasn't aware that it was happening um, until I saw a lot of people tweeting and posting on Instagram things like, okay, so I'm uh, embarrassingly very into Below Deck. That's a, 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 a evolution of the pandemic. Um, and Kate Chastain posted something where she was like pouring champagne and talked about getting ready for the Super Bowl. And I'm like, what are, is everyone talking about? Um, so then I decided, you know, as someone who speaks into a microphone, I should probably watch this, even though I really don't, I just don't care about it, but I'm going to watch it. And so quickly, I found myself really captivated. Um, I thought it was going to be a slog, but instead it was just, it was so candid and she was so vulnerable and the amount of emotion happening. Um, I didn't, at first I didn't quite understand when she was talking about feeling suicidal and asking for help and they weren't giving her help. I didn't really understand why she couldn't get help on her own. Uh, And then I think finally Oprah asked 
a question to that effect. And she said, you have to understand the last time I saw my passport, my keys and my license was, you know, before I came, I moved into the the palace. And that was a very chilling moment for me. I feel like that really illustrated the the gilded cage situation happening. And then also just I it's not it's not shocking to me the level of racism, but it's shocking to hear them speak openly about it and then just to be thinking about I don't know, you know, I think just as a human being, of course you can relate to family strife. Um but to hear them talking about it, to imagine the, the reverberations that are going to come from this interview. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was, I mean, there's so many things were fascinating about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the part that you mentioned about um, Megan feeling suicidal and not being allowed to get help was really something that stuck out to me. And it got me thinking about kind of other kind of fucked up ways that the royal family seems to handle pregnancy and childbirth, Mm -hmm. Um, like that kind of forced photo op thing outside the hospital, like right after, you know, Princess Diana gave birth, right after uh, Kate gave birth. And it all seems so strange. And also I remember, and it it reminded me that I remembered reading that Kate had debilitating morning sickness Mm -hmm. during her pregnancy. And like, I I remember reading that when it was happening and feeling bad for her that something so private about her, like what was going on inside of her body was like for public consumption and how I don't think very many people are put together to endure that sort of scrutiny. Like there's, that's not normal. Like human beings are not made to be scrutinized to the extent that any of the royals are scrutinized. And then you add on top of it, the, the racism of the institution of the royal family and the racism of, like, British people who make these really weird demands of the royal family. It just feel it felt like this really perfect storm. And I, I felt so, I felt so sorry for Meghan Markle. I mean, she was in a $15 million house wearing a $5,000 dress um, and, you know, with her handsome husband who's super in love with her in great weather talking to Oprah. And I <laughs> felt bad for her. You know, I, I was like, I, I can't wrap my head around the, the torture of being a part of the royal family. Alyssa, I wonder if you, um, what, what do you make of kind of conservative American media reaction to the interview and how they're kind of siding with the royal family, weirdly? Well, like the royal family is not even really siding with the royal family right now. <laughs> you know, right. I mean, they didn't come out and say, like the royal the, the royals themselves didn't come out and say it's not none of it's true. They didn't say that. They acknowledged it, they didn't deny it. So I think it's fucking wild that Fox News is like we're here for you royal family. The royal family is probably like fucking mute yourselves because you're not helping. But no, it's just that it's that, you know, the conservatives, I mean, God, fucking Megyn Kelly lost her brain over all of this. She could not, uh, she could not find her way to stop talking about that, you know, Megyn made it up and this, and it's like, you know what? Someone gets on television and says, I thought I had fucking suicidal thoughts. What's the real upside to making something like that up? Right. And it it's like why it's my thought immediately was Megan Kelly. I was like, 
Uh, do you make shit up, Megan? Because that's something you only think other people do if you do it yourself. My you know? favorite text that you and I, I don't know who sent it to who, was the um, was Megan Kelly criticizing Oprah's interview style, and someone else said, <laughs> someone else said, bitch, they paid you $30 million to stop interviewing people. <laughs> but you know, I mean, like, I can't, I guess there are things, the, what pandemic has taught me is that uh, we all have limited brain space, right? And so if there is something I don't care about, I'm certainly not going to spend multiple hours and hundreds of tweets being mad about it when I really don't care about it. And that seems to be what they did. They're trying to uncover the conservatives, some sort of like conspiracy between Megan and Harry and Oprah and I don't know who else. And it's like, who cares? They told their story. Believe it. Don't believe it. Like get on with yourselves. They just, it's like, it's like, it's like they got through their week and they were like fucking Dr. Seuss and Mr. Potato Head and now this. Like- I think there's a bit of a generational thing. Um, and I think there's this idea. I think that there are a lot of older women and I don't I wouldn't necessarily put Megyn Kelly in this category, but I think there's a lot of older women who feel like the appropriate thing to do as, you know, as Megan, as a young woman, should just be thankful that she got to have this experience and should not speak out about this powerful institution that wronged her. I think that when someone tells lies about you and then as a woman, you try to set the record straight, I think it's really kind of a no-win situation Mm. because people are going to accuse you of being whiny, of being ungrateful, of making it up, of being dramatic. And really like the only acceptable response is, thank you so much for that wonderful experience. Right. Even though history, there are multiple, multiple cover stories and articles written about the fact that Fergie felt suicidal at several points throughout her marriage to uh, Andrew and of course, Diana. And so it's like, well, what? 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 Nothing's changed. I mean, it's people been talking about this for ages. I don't understand the reluctance to believe that it could be unpleasant. I don't get it. Mm -hmm. It seems very naive. I. I mean, is it? I think it's just and the money. The money. Yeah. I mean, there's the money. There's the wealth. There's all of these trappings of like you have to understand. Like a lot of people trying to get help for mental health, like they're not going to be able to afford to go somewhere. Right. So it's like those problems are completely taken care of. And the reason the British people feel so invested in this shit is it's because it's their fucking money. Like you have to remember. That's a good point. These. People haven't been paid. Like, they started paying taxes within the last 20 fucking years. Do you understand? They started paying taxes. Do you understand? Like, paying tax. The people who levy taxes on everyone else for the fucking salt, for the sugar, still mad about it very clearly. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, not over this. Truly not over this. Like, those people were not paying taxes. And the counter argument, I have a, uh, you know, a family member who is a is a Anglophile Ah, uh, the crown. I love the crown. You know, you have to protect Her Majesty the Queen. You know, you you must protect at all costs. You must protect. It's like, and the argument there that I've heard him say that's you know kind of the most cogent is, um, 
is that the the institution, the institution of the crown, brings in a ton of tourist money. It right. is a major draw to um, Britain. It's a, a lot of people go visit the palace, like a lot of people. All of that pomp and circumstance is actually like a massive moneymaker for us as a country. It gives us something that is is a reinvestment back into a thing that goes beyond the vestige of the institution. Um, I love what you said about the institution having prestige um, and how it's hard to criticize an institution, any institution that has prestige. Again, Harvard had that. It was like, if you aren't enjoying this place, oh, I guess you're not smart enough to cut it. Right. I guess you're not, because mm -hmm. presidents are from here. Tommy Lee Jones mm -hmm. went here. So what the fuck is your problem? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, that's what, that's the vibe. I love that it's Megan versus Megan too. Megan, oh, yeah. <laughs> but one of them, one of them, like both of them, spell it in the not ideal way. But M E G Y N. That's where their Megan angst comes from, right? But M E M E G Y N. I feel like it should end with necologist, meg gynecologist, <laughs> and it just doesn't. It's me gynecologist, and it, I guess uh, Megan always starts with M E for me. Um, you know, I was uh, I was just thinking about like the archaic nature of the of the British royal family and you know there's all these like f traditions that are kind of like fun and silly for us to watch from across the ocean um, but when we're paying taxes to support it I think it might make us a little bit angrier um, like Kieran's family has to do um, but I just remember a recent story um, a story in recent weeks about a raven at the Tower of London escaping or dying or something like that and there is uh, there's a, like a legend that once all the ravens are gone from the Tower of London the monarchy will fall which I'm just saying the ravens are peeling <laughs> off um, so I want to talk a little bit about Oprah herself, uh, oh. because she arguably, without Oprah, that interview would have, could have been a snooze fest. It could have absolutely been a snooze fest, but Oprah is a, a generational and, and maybe like a once in a century talent when it comes to what she does. So, um, Allison, what did Oprah do that made that interview so special? And who would you like to see her interview next? Ooh. Um, she is so good at circling back with the guest. If they say something euphemistic, which there was a lot of euphemistic talk in this one. In fact, there, I was watching it with my husband when Harry joined, uh, and my husband was like, wow, it's amazing to hear him just lay it all out like that. And my reaction was like, uh, what did he just lay out? Because I didn't understand a word of that with the like, <laughs> there's the firm and then there's the, I mean, I, I got lost in the weeds, but Oprah kept, you know, saying, and she had a funny way of saying, she was like, I want you to be able to clarify, like as if she's doing it as a favor to them. It's like, no, I think it's more for the, for the, the viewer to understand. And she really pressed them to get details. It's interesting to me because she is, seen as such an empathetic figure. And I do believe she's empathetic, but really she's also a very dogged interviewer who really does push the, the, the guest that she's interviewing. Um, you know, there's so much talk these days about emotional labor. And I think the, and it's said in a pejorative in an interview setting, like making a guest do emotional labor. And I was thinking, I enjoyed the interview. I think Oprah's great, but like they, there was a lot of emotional labor asked of Megan and of Harry. Now, granted, they you know agreed to do this and they wanted to do it and they got a lot out of it too. Um, but I just thought she's really good at just creating a framework at effortlessly creating a narrative 
and letting everyone know sort of the backstory and then following up and just taking you on a whole emotional journey. And I'm trying to think who I would want to hear her interview next. Um, I mean, I, I read a review where someone said, can she interview Brittany next? And that mm-hmm. would be fascinating because mm-hmm. there's so many questions about that. Um, yeah, I'm going to go with Brittany. Okay. Okay. I think that's a, that's a good one. I think we would get to the truth. Also, Oprah never seems like she's trying to make anybody cry or break mm-hmm. down or right. hurt anybody's feelings. She's not like coming in like fucking Diane Sawyer, who I'll never forgive for mm. treating Britney like shit and being like, did you know that the wife of the governor of Maryland wants to shoot you? She doesn't do any of that stuff. And yet, though, she's like, okay, you know, the tabloids are calling you this. They're saying this. And I remember there's a moment where Megan's like, oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. But but as you watch it, you don't feel like she's doing anything underhanded. She has mm-hmm. a really, a really fascinating way of being able to deliver what could be barbed in someone else's hands, but mm-hmm. in hers, it it doesn't come across that way. It's because she starts with empathy. Yeah. It feels like she's coming from a place of like trying to understand how it would make the other person feel. So if she's delivering them information, she's coming to them like on their team instead mm-hmm. of like in an adversarial way. Um, Alyssa, I wonder what, uh, same question for you. What, what do you, what, what is the magic of Oprah and who do you think she should interview next? Well, Oprah, I mean, I think that Oprah, it's, it's like you were saying about empathy. I mean, she just leads with curiosity. Like she herself yeah. wants to know the answer and it's not, it's not, uh, there is nothing about it that is ever really like gotcha. And after all these years, I mean, you guys, I am old enough to say that I watched Oprah every single day at four o'clock, mm-hmm. um, every single day. You know, and the reason that I give her such credit is that she herself has put her, she has put herself in really uncomfortable positions over the years. Like when she went down to West Virginia and was talking about AIDS, I mean, like she just, she's fucking done it. And so I think that um, that experience just gives her bandwidth in a way that no one else has. I mean, you guys, she wasn't even holding notes. <laughs> like, yeah, what the fuck? I, I thought no notes. <laughs> oh my god! And a, apparently, the entire interview was over three and a half, almost three and a half hours. I think by the time she was done. But I think that I would want her. Who would I want Oprah to interview? Oh, okay. I think I would want her to interview Melania. Because here's why. We know nothing about what happens inside her brain. You know Melania would accept it because of her hubris and that ultimately she would care more about what Oprah thinks about her than how much trouble she would get in with Donald Trump for maybe telling some of the truth. (laughs) That's a really good – that's a good pitch. Thank you. That's a good pitch. I hope she's listening. Let's run that up the chain. Okay. Um, <laughs> Kieran, same question for you. Yeah, I think uh, Ivanka Ivanka and Jared would be interesting <gasps> as well. I would want to hear yes. her. Even better, even better. Because it is, I would agree that she does come from a place of genuine curiosity. And she has interviewed thousands upon thousands of people. So it's not just that genius skill. It is the the veteran, like she has talked to people with no money. She's talked to people with all the money. Like she has her, her, the breadth, the breadth and the depth of her interviewing experience is over the last like 30 years, you know, and she's just done it so much. And that deftness of hand, seems like it's founded in, in her own curiosity 
plus the skill of having done it so much, you know? You had said you're like, she was in this gazillion dollar house and like, you know, whatever. She's like outside sitting with Oprah and I felt sorry for her. And it, it the one thing that struck me about that is the difference between the the internal subjective experience of right. of something and the external like narrative experience, which I think is something now that everyone has social media is something that is very true. It's what you're what you're looking at as the image or the idea of a thing versus what is that internal narrative. So there's something really like, I don't know, there's something so on the money in terms of um in terms of the moment of the timing of this interview to be happening around such a massive institution. Other mm-hmm. than like the faux pas of the grandpa being in the hospital, you know. Right, right. Um, yeah, that is that's is super interesting because like, you know, just to kind of go back to what you were saying about mental health, like if having unlimited money could fix every mental health problem, there would be no people who are wealthy and depressed. hundred percent. And like, and you can have access to everything in the world and still have struggles with mental health. That is not something that's completely decoupled from having means, but it's something that can't be overcome by simply throwing money at it. And everybody experiences mental health struggles and be having money doesn't minimize that experience. And and I think that ties into what you were saying, Kieran, that what is happening outside and what is happening inside, they don't necessarily feel the same. Um, so I want to talk quickly before we wrap up uh, my, my Oprah dream interview. I think Oprah should interview criminals, international criminals yes. that have information that we need. Because like, I think a super butch interrogation style doesn't work doesn't get people to admit to things or tell you things. The way to get people to tell you secrets is to talk to them like their girlfriend. I want her to talk to Al Chapo's I wife. I was going to say Chapo's girlfriend. Yeah, or yeah, or the wife. one that just got uh, yeah. just got uh, got nabbed for running drugs, which, woo, who could have seen <laughs> a close associate of a major drug smuggler? Who could have seen it coming that they were also involved? Um, but I would love to. I would love to see her interview people that are involved with like espionage. I would love to see her interview people who are dealing, who are like, you know, in charge of criminal networks. I want to see her talk to people that are in danger of going to the Hague because that's the (laughs) only way we're going to learn like what really happened is to have somebody that can like lead with curiosity. And I don't mean empathy, like we shouldn't be like empathizing with war criminals, but acknowledgement of a shared humanity. Perhaps we can learn things about people who have done terrible things. Like that's the way you get to people's secrets is like sharing humanity with them. Um, Okay, we have to take a quick break. When we come back, I feel petty. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Okay, welcome back. We are almost done with the show, but not quite done because we still have to get in some petty jabs before we send you into your weekend. It's I Feel Petty. But before we get to what we're going to be petty about this week, a little bit of housekeeping. Last week, Democrats in the House passed H.R. 1, a democracy reform package that would make voting way more accessible and partisan gerrymandering and reduce the power of special interests 
and make major ethics reforms. All of those things seem good. They're good, right? Those things are good. They're good. We we want those things. I feel like that's kind of a no-brainer. Now that the bill heads to the Senate, we're getting the votes we need it to pass could be the biggest fight we face over the next four years. So if you care about climate change, healthcare, police reform, or any other progressive goal, you have to care about fixing our democracy first. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash for the people to learn more about this bill and how you can help make sure it gets passed. Uh, This is super important. Very. Like, it's uh, nothing is going to get done unless we get this passed. All the worst people, the terrible, whiny, maskless rally minority is going to dictate the agenda of this country. And that's just not okay. So can't we, be. we have to get, can't be, can't be, um, can't be okay. And I just wanted to shout out two of our listeners from Florida named Heather and Jeff, who a tipster tells me just got engaged. Heather is a teacher and according to her friend Nikki, a quote, true hero. So congratulations to you two lovebirds. My advice to you, just have the wedding you want and don't let people push you around. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Don't let them push you around. <laughs> but congrats to Heather and Jeff. Okay, the house has been kept. Now let's get to what we are petty about. Allison, you are the guest. Tell us what is making you feel petty this week. Okay. Allow me to preface by saying I recently listened to Michaela on the show talk about Gwyneth Paltrow, uh, you know, complaining about having gained 11 pounds in the pandemic and how that is just so damaging to all the young women who, who are prone to eating disorders out there. And it was so noble and really the opposite of petty. So mine is is very, very small and very petty, but it will be the reason that I leave my husband and move out of this house. So <laughs> when I walk around in socks lately, when I walk into the kitchen, I'll like step on something sticky, just tiny bit sticky. And the feeling of my sock mm. getting stuck to the floor makes me want to kill myself or kill someone else. (laughs) And I don't know what is causing the stickiness. I don't know who is doing it. My husband, and it's become an issue now between us. He's like, I'm not dropping jelly. I'm not, he just like, I don't know what it could be. Because yesterday I was like, I, because it was near where the coffee maker is. And I'm like, did you put sugar in your coffee this morning? I think it could be that. And he's like, I'm very careful with it. But I don't know. I don't know what is causing it. But it seems like the stickiness moves around the kitchen. And every day it makes me so, so, so annoyed. I cannot. Like, it's getting worse and worse and worse. I'm losing my frigging mind. That's my I feel petty. <laughs> Wait, don't you have, like, Two small kids. Those to me would be suspects number one and two when it came to sticky things. You would think, right? Except except that my husband and I are, they're four and two. So we're basically their butlers. So we're doing all the preparing unless they're like sneaking sticky stuff in because <laughs> um, they're not really fixing themselves anything in the kitchen. So I'm not ruling them out. They could be walking around with their sticky hands and then putting those on the floor, right? Because they're close to the ground. They're small. I'm going to do a lineup later and I'm going to touch the mm-hmm. feet and I'm going to touch the hands. I'm a detective. I know I need to let it go, but I can't because it. I don't know why. It like makes me lose my mind. <laughs> well, look, mental health is important, like we said. And uh, I, I, I think hidden cameras. Hidden yes. cameras are maybe one way to do it. 
Um, and, Invest you know, in a slipper, a slipper. So, oh yeah, I, I need some kind of sole situation, like a house shoe, a house shoe, yeah. maybe house shoe, house shoe. A house. I know, Ugh. and then it'll drive me even more crazy. Oh man, for me, it's it's like the dog can't drink water without just slapping it all around his dish. And if I'm walking in socks and I get in too close of a perimeter around his, my socks will get wet. And it's like, well, gotta take these off now. I can't wear them. <laughs> yes, I used to think I used to think a wet sock was the worst thing that could possibly happen sock wise. But just it's it's not. It's stepping in something sticky and having your socks okay. stick. Well, I'm glad that's not happening to me. I hope my sticky ghosts uh, stay outside. Um, okay. My I Feel Petty this week is about fashion. Um, fashion. Remember that? It is uh, how, the the way that we used to decorate our bodies when we were going out into the world to interact <laughs> with or possibly just see other human beings. It was uh, – anyway, that was what fashion was. There's been some debate lately on TikTok specifically – about uh, skinny jeans and uh, millennial fashion versus Gen Z fashion. And I've seen a lot of heated rhetoric on both sides. I've seen millennials that are like, from my cold, dead hands about their skinny jeans. <laughs> and I've seen uh, people who are like really aggressive about talking about how much they don't care about it, which is kind of a defeats the purpose of speaking out if you don't really care. Um, but here is my thought. Jeans-wise, wear whatever jeans you want. You know, wear wear relaxed fit jeans, wear skinny jeans, wear big old bell bottoms. I don't care. Uh, fashion is a capitalist scam to get you to buy things that you don't need because of their reasons besides them being worn out. The one thing that I want to warn Gen Z of that was a 90s and Y2K era trend, I, I need I need anybody who's under 25 or so to listen to me. Do not overpluck your eyebrows. Oh, truth. No matter how mm. trendy it gets, no matter they will not grow back. They won't. And like thin eyebrows might look cool. Like 90s era Drew Barrymore looked really awesome. There's like, you know, kind of this 20s feeling to the very, very pencil thin eyebrows. I know they're going to come back in fashion. Don't do it, guys. Because for the rest of your life, that is the only eyebrow fashion that you'll be able to have, <laughs> unless you invest in uh, in powder and like a, an elaborate system of filling your brows in. It is going to cost you money for the rest of your life. If you have beautiful thick eyebrows, do not pluck them thin. Cherish them, please. I am begging you, Generation Z. It is for your own good. Ignore me at your peril. Someone and find a picture of me and let that be your cautionary tale because that's what happened to me. And I get people, because, you know, podcast listeners like to let you know what they think, and I love that, but also <laughs> um, stop being mean about my eyebrows. People tell me to let them grow in all the time. They won't grow in. This is what I'm stuck with. <laughs> it's just this... Thin eyebrows, sticky sock. <laughs> no one gets my pain. Burn. Oprah, interview me. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, Alyssa, what is your I feel petty this week? Okay, so if you are someone who sells a service, let's say an online business helping <laughs> website or your bank. I know what this is about. okay. <laughs> You have to have a 1-800 customer service line that is manned by humans. It is not mm -hmm. fair. Do not, mm -hmm. do not have me call you. Hold on. Just as an example, don't have me call you 18 times <laughs> and not 
answer because the problem is you have sold me something that says it's going to help me, but now I'm actually up shit's creek because not only did you not help me, you screwed me, and now you won't answer the damn phone. And mm-hmm. so anyway, I just think that, you know, it's one of those things we learned. What was that fucking crazy trading website? I think Robin Hood, where no yeah. one answered the phone and terrible things happened. This is not that. I am not comparing myself to that family in any way. But I'm just saying if you are selling a membership to something or a product that is meant to help people that often doesn't help people, you have to have someone answer the phone because I am not falling for your press pound and we'll call you back. You are number 175 in the queue. That's not going to happen. So please just do it. Otherwise, I'm going to start telling people who you are. Okay, that's it. That's it. We're going to start saying names. We're going to start naming names. Uh, I think that's fair, and I know exactly what you're talking about. She does, because I was almost late to the show because of it. Oh, God. I texted Aaron, I'm next in queue. I might be late. Oh, my God. The worst is when they're like, have you ever tried to call the city for anything? Oh, yeah. And one time there was a raccoon that was clearly sick in <laughs> Central Park, and it was like, it was not okay. The raccoon should have been cleared and given to a wildlife sanctuary or possibly put down because it was acting very weird. He was rabid. And I, yeah, I think it had distemper. Because oh. if it was rabid, it would have been more aggressive, but it was acting distemper. Sad. Yeah. Country kids know what distemper <laughs> looks like in raccoons. Um, <laughs> but I called the city and the city was like, uh, animal care and control, we'll get someone out there on Monday. It was Friday. I was like, the raccoon is going to give everyone... I was like, they're going to give everyone on the Upper West Side distemper by then. <laughs> like, you're the city won't exist. We're all going to go crazy and burn this shit down. But yeah, I I don't understand places where they just won't help you once yeah. you, you need help. help. It's, that's, it's your job. It's part of it. It's part of it. It's part do of your job. Have, um, do they have the number front and center or is it hidden? Because that's oh. I hate that when I'm like, I just want to call and talk to a person and it, under contact, it just has like a form. Like Uber. Them. Is that how they are? No phone number. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. mm-hmm. like when you, that. Phone number yeah. should be mandatory and it should be manned. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Here. Or like, thank you. Or you have to like Google until you find someone who put it on a forum. I've done that about before too. Where it's like on page four of the Google results and you're like, okay, how do I get help for my internet service provider? Okay, someone put it on a forum. Oh, that's terrible. There's also that um, website, Get a Human. Mm, oh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> bookmark that. Hang you on. You might find them. There. Everybody keep talking. <laughs> yeah. There's a whole industry built around trying to make everyone waste so much time that they get fed up and quit. Like yes. that's a, there's a whole like uh, area of innovation of like, how can we just, it's like actuaries calculating life insurance <laughs> risks. They're like, how much time can we keep these people on the phone where we will get most of them to drop out? Health and insurance stop companies do this. Health insurance Say, companies yes. do it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All the um, insurances, all the insurances do it. Yeah. Life insurance. Kieran, life insurance? I mean, I don't have that. I'm not, oh, okay. I'm, you, as you know, I'm on the fence about the whole operation. So I'm like, yeah, <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not paying you for nothing. What? I was going to no, say. No more. Kieran, you're literally Nosferatu. Like, you can't even buy life insurance. 100%. So. It's like, I was like, no. We, the fact that I have to have any insurance, that, that, that fucking 
Thug Lizard nearly got me the other day. He nearly broke me. You know, <laughs> that Geico. guy nearly, nearly broke me. <laughs> um, Karen, what do you feel petty about this week besides computer animated lizards who want you to buy insurance? You know, um, I've been hearing people talk a lot of shit about astrology recently. The only people interested in astrology are like people who have no power or control over their lives, a.k.a. women, a.k.a. that's why they're in women's magazine. Uh, it's also like, yeah, but also like, it's like a whole thing in India. Do you know what I mean? Like there's like a whole, there's like a billion people who are like, let's check these charts out. Also, there's nothing to do. It's a pandemic. You have so little control. Like, does all joy have to die? Do you know what I mean? Like, wh- like, why does the little bit of magic, the little bit of magic, like, do I really want to be responsible for a Trump presidency? I voted. I still have no power. Like, maybe Mercury was in retrograde. Do you understand? Like, it's like, sometimes it's helpful to have something to blame it on that isn't the other people that makes you lose faith in humanity. Okay, Kieran, what's your rising sign? It's a great question. I need to find that out. (laughs) I got to commit a little deeper into the... I was like so snotty about astrology for so long. Um, But uh, yeah, I mean, look, I think that during the pandemic, it has really... The one way that I've chilled out is I've gotten less judgmental about astrology. Who cares? It's fun. People like it. It helps people feel better. Who cares? Second thing, crystals. Who cares? They're pretty. And if you believe that they help you, then fine, you know, don't spend your life savings on them. But what are they hurting? You know, I agree. That's that's my thought. Okay, guys, this was so fun. Uh, Thank you, Alyssa Mastromonaco, for being my ride or die. Thank you, Kieran, for stopping by. Thank you, Allison Rosen, for being an incredible guest panelist. We had so much fun with you. And thanks to Kim Kelly for talking to us about the labor movement. And most of all, thanks to you, the listeners. There will be more hysteria next week. Hysteria is a Crooked Media production. Caroline Rustin is our producer. Our executive producer is me, Aaron Ryan. Alyssa Mastromonaco is our co-producer, and Brian Semmel is our associate producer. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer, and our editor is Sarah Gibalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. Our digital team is Nar Malconian and Magic Root. Thank you to Juliet Beckstrand for production support every week. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.